Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. This will be our last episode for the year. We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks over Christmas and then be back the week of CES, which is, uh, I believe, the week of the 4th of January. Uh, We'll have to double check that. But uh, at any rate, this will be our last one for the year. And as such, we're going to spend a lot of the time today focused on some predictions for 2016. Some of them will be fairly tame. Some of them will be a bit more out there. Um, As usual with the podcast, there's something of an Apple focus to all of this, but we'll also go broader than Apple and talk about the industry in general and some other companies specifically as well as we get into those predictions. Uh, But first, we just wanted to spend about 10 minutes talking through three news items, um, all of them, again, relating to Apple uh, over the last week or so. The first is the management changes that were announced the morning of uh, the day that we're recording this, which is Thursday the 17th. Uh, The second is the Morgan Stanley report from Katie Huberty about iPhone growth next year. And the third one is the open sourcing of Swift, and specifically some of the remarks that uh, Craig Federighi made about that whole uh, process and and the meaning of it in an interview with uh, John Gruber on his podcast. Um, so we'll, we'll chat about those for about 10 minutes, and then we'll move on to these uh, these predictions. So we'll start off with the management changes. And just to summarize, for anybody who's not familiar, Jeff Williams, who's been SVP of operations at Apple for a long time, was formally made chief operating officer today. Um, the second change was that Johnny Shruji, who um, has been running the chip uh, technology effort at Apple, was promoted to SVP hardware technologies. And then the third change was that... Um, uh, Phil Schiller is taking over uh, responsibility for the App Store from Eddie Q, who's owned essentially everything relating to iTunes and the App Store until now. And I guess actually a fourth minor change was uh, a new appointment, uh, new responsibility for, for Marcoms, a guy who's come in from outside Apple, who's previously an agency who's been brought in to oversee advertising, some other Marcoms-related stuff. I uh, probably won't focus on that today, but it might be interesting to pick that up in, in future. Um, so Aaron, any, can you kind of... When we were talking about this before we started recording, you sort of picked up on the App Store change as as sort of the most notable in some ways. So you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, I think... So the rationale behind EddieQ being over the App Store is because he was over the iTunes Store, right? And the App Store sort of grew within iTunes. I think the problem is that it's a very different model. And I don't think EddieQ was ever the right guy to be running the App Store. Not the best guy, I should say, running the App Store. I, I just don't think he's customer experience focused enough. I mean, he's notorious as the, being the deal, ma- deal maker for Apple, which totally makes sense on the iTunes side. Um, but it makes a lot, le- and, and, and you'll notice a lot of the other things he's still over have a lot to do with acquisitions, like Maps, for example. Um, but uh, I think I, I, I think there's just a customer experience element to the app store that's out been mishandled for a long time and developer experience aspect right. as well that is just you know is that the app store is notoriously bad for and and I, I think Phil Schiller is the best guy to manage those those aspects of the app store so I think this is exciting I think you're going to see changes in the app store over the coming years as a result of this. And I think they'll be mm-hmm. positive. So I think that part's really exciting. 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we've talked obviously about App Store over the last few weeks, a couple of times. Some of the challenges, especially as related to the uh, the iPad and so on. So, uh, it's not been obvious kind of what the trigger would be for for changing that. At some point, it was clear that you know Apple must understand that there were these challenges, and yet they didn't seem to be doing much about it, at least publicly. Right. So, this may well be the trigger that was needed to finally get something going there. I, I think what you, I think the, I think it's a combination of things with the App Store. I think there hasn't been a ton of developer interest in the Apple TV yet. I don't think as much as Apple would have hoped for lead coming into the holidays. Um, I think obviously the high profile departures from the Mac App Store is bringing attention to something negative press in a way that I think Apple cares about how much they care about it, you know, on its own, I don't think matters, but I think in combination with the other things, it matters. Um, and, uh, I, I think the problem is, is it creates a sort of a negative momentum about the App Store generally mm-hmm. in all its manifestations. Yeah. And I think this is. I think there's a PR benefit to putting Phil Schiller in charge of it. Just mm-hmm. the announcement alone, I think, is 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 a cause for hope. And it right. sort of, you know, I don't know if it stops the negativity in its tracks, but I think it slows it down. Yeah, and I, I think too, there's a logic to the App Store belonging with the operating systems too. Right. I think you know, it's a, it's obviously a crucial part of the appeal of all of Apple's operating systems, and so putting it together with them makes a lot of sense in that in that way. Um, you know, the interesting thing, of course, is, you know, if Eddie Q is, is no longer negotiating TV rights, as he supposedly has been for the past year, he's now also no longer overseeing the App Store. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess this frees him up to focus more on Apple Music and potentially fixing some of the problems there. And then he still owns things like iCloud and other services and so on as well. So well, that's what- uh, potentially frees him up to work on that. And who knows, maybe some new stuff, too. And we'll talk about that a bit later when we get through the predictions. And that's so services totally make sense. I mean, iTunes Store, or Apple Music. Apple Pay, Apple Maps, iAd, iCloud, those are all services. And then you get to iWork, and that's still under ADQ. That seems like a weird, mm. like that's that's software, not service. And although they have the online stuff, but that's all pretty minor compared to the to the native apps. Yeah. And so that's the one sort of weird remnant with ADQ. Mm. And it makes yeah, it me, does it does make me worry that iWork is going to be overlooked in the year to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, as far as the Jeff Williams announcement goes, that feels like it's, uh, you know, more or less a reflection of the job he's already been doing. Um, I don't know if there's a huge significance to it. I mean, he has obviously overseen uh, the Apple Watch over the last uh, year or so, which was a big deal for (laughs) Apple. So, you know, perhaps also recognition of of what Tim Cook considers a job well done there. Uh, But I'm not sure there's a huge amount of other significance there other than he's kind of formalizing uh, this this responsibility. And there's the symbolism, you know, he's often been referred to as Tim Cook's Tim Cook. Right. Um, and, you know, and now he formally has the same job title that Tim Cook used to have, but I don't know there's a huge amount more significance to it than that. I agree. And then Johnny Shruji, I mean, we don't, again, want to spend a ton of time on this, but his promotion is just, I think, a reflection of the fact that, you know, the chips that Apple has focused so much on over the last couple of years are enormously important to Apple. And so it's a reflection of, you know, you now have, you know, these senior executives with responsibility for software and hardware and the chips, you know, and services, you know, all being called out explicitly as kind of legs of the Apple stool, if you like. And so I think it just raises his profile externally, but also just reflects the fact that, you know, the work done there is absolutely central to the appeal and the differentiation of these Apple devices. Well, and and I mean, we talked about this in a question of the week, uh, right. you know, a month or so ago. Apple had some high-profile departures over the last couple of years from the chip team. 
Mm. And so uh, it's not to say that there was a leadership vacuum there, but it seems like the it was an opportunity for a restructuring and formalization that I think is now just finally culminating. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, it was back in episode 17, we talked about the A-series chip. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you may want to go back and listen to that because we talked about them in detail there, but absolutely... Um, okay, let's move on to that second news item then, the, the, the Morgan Stanley report from Katie Huberty, the main analyst there that covers Apple. Um, the report basically called for a pretty significant reduction in, in Morgan Stanley's estimates and, and uh, expectations for Apple over the next year, especially as regards iPhones. So they were predicting shrinkage in iPhones over certain periods where they previously had expected growth. A couple of drivers of that. One is some supply chain stuff that these guys are always doing where they're checking um, supply chain uh, companies and what they're expecting and so on. And then the other side of it is sort of consumer surveys, looking at demand and search search activity around phones and things like that. So off the back of all of that, they lowered their forecast. And they're obviously a pretty high-profile firm. This isn't some marginal analyst somewhere who's just trying to get attention. This is a very mainstream, very large firm that's making this prediction. So obviously fairly newsworthy. Aaron, I know that you were a bit dismissive of, of this to some extent. Yeah, well, that's the problem with doing a, an audio podcast is you, I, you can't see me rolling my eyes. But um, <laughs> mostly at the supply chain stuff, I mean, I don't know. I, You know, I why should Morgan Stanley all of a sudden have this uh, supply chain expertise that nobody else has been able to figure out and do correctly? Um, in fact, I think Gruber pointed out that they were, you know, the, the Morgan Stanley info seemed to indicate that Apple had overestimated their orders by double, which is insane. I mean, Tim Cook's Apple doesn't do that. And so um, I, I think what is actually happening is the surveys seem like a big deal because they're, having, they're making an indication about smartphone growth in the U.S. next year, which you're going to be talking about in a little bit. But um, but I think the truth is that that Apple has still has plenty of room to grow with the iPhone and Android switchers, and so I don't know. I think I am skeptical on that report. I I think uh, I think there's still a lot of room for the iPhone to grow, and also when you consider the price cuts in India just recently, mm-hmm. um, I, th- I think India still has a ton of upside for Apple as far as the iPhone goes. Yeah, that's something we should probably talk about in a whole separate episode because I think India is fascinating as it comes to the iPhone. So it's yeah. tempting to compare it to China, and yeah, it's not China. Very different markets. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, on balance, I, I was you know I'm always skeptical of the supply chain stuff because they always oversimplify. They, they often assume that you know reductions at one vendor mean something significant when in fact it could just be switching vendors right. or something like that. But it's the survey stuff that makes me take it a bit more seriously. And I've seen other people talking about similar trends where. China demand still up year on year, but other markets, it's less so. And we, we will talk about that a bit when we come to the predictions. But uh, the third thing was uh, the open sourcing of Swift that's obviously been long expected and finally happened in the last couple of weeks. And then Craig, Craig Federighi, who oversees all of this for Apple, was on John Gruber's podcast, um, the talk show, and uh, uh, they spoke about Swift. And uh, we had, in our, one of our first episodes, episode two, in fact, of the Beyond Devices podcast, we talked about... Uh, Swift and the open sourcing of Swift and the significance of that. And we, we drew uh, on the expertise of Farshad Nayeri, who, who was very helpful to us 
uh, in putting that episode together. But um, very interesting to see some of the themes we first talked about back then coming up again in that interview and, and in the coverage of all of this generally. Um, and specifically the potential for Swift being taught as a programming language in, in universities. And I know that you thought that was fairly significant. Right. In fact, I, I think it's fun actually to look back on the, all the great insights we got from Farshad because I think most of them were reflected in in, uh, in the interview that Craig Federighi gave. Um, but uh, I, th- I think that's going to be the bellwether of Swift as an open source language at universities. I think if it's being taught in computer science or information systems programs at, at the university level, you can put your stock in it as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a promising future language. I, I mean, these are the, you know, th- these programs are always going to be really sensitive to employer demands because they need to place their students when they graduate. Um, and the faculty are, the, I mean, because this is their academic field, they're always fascinated about what's on the cutting edge. And I think um, a lot of it, a lot of computer science faculty tend to move before other people do. And so I think you're gonna when it comes to that kind of stuff. And so I think this is where you're gonna. I think this is gonna be the bellwether if you keep your eye on computer science programs around the country, with how much they're integrating Swift and not just having like a one-off class but like it's becoming more deeply ingrained into the way that they work. I think that will be the, the real measure of, of that would be a great measure of how um, of Swiss future as an open source language. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, that covers uh, those news items from this week. And as I said, we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about some predictions for 2016. And we're going to go through these fairly quickly. I think we'll probably bounce back and forth taking in turns with these. Uh, some of them are Apple-related. Some of them are broader than, than just Apple. Uh, Aaron's Apple-related ones tend to be more kind of product-focused, whereas mine are more sort of financial and performance-oriented. So a slightly different angle there. And we do have, as I say, some predictions that don't relate to Apple specifically. So we'll, we'll cover those as well. We'll probably do the Apple ones first, I think. Uh, and then go on to the other ones, but uh, uh, let's go. Let's go to you, Aaron. Um, I think you had some predictions around kind of the first half of the year, and especially as regards the new, the the next edition of the watch. So why right. don't you kick us off with that? Um, I, you know, there have already been some reliable rumors coming out about a watch event in March with the new watch shipping in April. I've kind of always thought that that's what was going to happen. Um, it fits with the typical schedule Apple uses from first gen to second gen for new products. Um, I think the highlights of the of the of the next Apple Watch are going to be. I think it's going to be thinner, and I realize that's a very cliche, in fact, kind of ridiculously safe prediction to make about Apple these days. <laughs> but I, I do think it is going to be thinner. But that said, I think it's still going to fit all existing bands. In fact, that's going to be an interesting problem for Apple as the watch grows yeah. into the future because bands are a major investment. It's not like an iPad cover or, or iPad case. And, um, you know, asking somebody to abandon a $400 watch band is not going to is going to be a challenge for Apple as far as the size and shape of the lugs are concerned. But I think they're going to figure out a way to make it thinner using the existing lugs. Um, I think the thing that's going to be a big deal is they're going to talk about how much faster it is because that's the low-hanging fruit on the watch right now is a faster S1 processor. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's going to be a ton faster, and I think that's actually going to get developers more excited because right now third-party apps are just not really going anywhere on the watch. And my impression is a bunch of that has to do with just the user experience that comes from the watch being slow. 
Uh, I think it's going to get better Force Touch. They'll you know import some of the technologies from the iPhone 6s. Um, uh, I think th- probably the the more far out stuff there is. Oh, and then just one other safe prediction is I don't think WatchOS is going to get updated or even paid attention to until WWDC. Um, I think the two kind of out there things I have to predict about the watch are that there are no there are going to be no new health tracking sensors on the watch. And in fact, I think that's the rumor mill is going to make all these predictions about a new sensor of some kind, maybe like blood oxygen levels or something like that. This stuff is just really, really hard. And I don't think there's I don't think Apple has a magic wand on that. And so I think instead what is going to happen is they're just going to talk about all the refinements that they're bringing to the existing sensors, specifically motion and heart rate. Um, And then my out there prediction on the watch is they're going to throw in a FaceTime camera on the front of it. And so you'll be able to do... Yeah, that really does feel like an out there one to me, I have to say. Sure, (laughs) but but it's not a huge... But I mean, it's it's not a huge technological leap for Apple to do that. And I think the idea of being able to do FaceTime calls on your watch is just is going to be uh, a gimmick they make a big deal out of. So yeah, I worry that it'll be like you know uh, the the drawing and tapping on the screen and right. stuff like that that really doesn't seem to have taken off for the vast majority of people. Yeah. Where it'd be an interesting headline, but you know Dick Tracy and all the rest of it. But yep. uh, and that's it's something that people won't actually use in real life. But Apple does something like that on everything that they sell. Like there's. There are substantial updates that make a huge difference in usability, and then there's always mm-hmm. one or two. I mean, they're not excessive about it like, uh, I don't know, Samsung had been in the past. Yeah, I feel like Apple often you know, lands on the right side of the kind of gimmick versus sure. you know, delighter but, but, sort of spectrum. But, uh, but I, I think this yeah. is going to be a thing. So Yeah, okay. All right, anything else in relation to the watch? Nope. So event in March, launch in April right. was kind of what you were saying, right? Okay. All right, so my, my first Apple-related prediction is quite a simple one, and it's that the iPad doesn't grow next year either, that it shrinks again. And I know that a lot of people are kind of banking on the iPad Pro finally turning that iPad line around. And, you know, I think Apple's financials would be measurably better if the iPad was at least breaking even year on year rather than shrinking. But I, I just can't see it happening. I just feel like uh, we're moving away from... Uh, you know, tablets is a growth area where all the growth is is at the low end of the market where Apple doesn't really play. The iPad Pro will probably, you know, slow the growth a little bit at least. But I, the, the improvements to the iPad Air and Mini have been so small um, that I just don't feel like we're going to get uh, a turnaround in the iPad line anytime soon. So I think that's going to continue to be something that Apple has to deal with is that that, that iPad line is shrinking. Um, in part, it's shrinking because, you know, Mac books are getting more compelling and especially because iPhones are getting bigger and better as computers as well. Um, so I don't think it's a bad thing. I think, you know, spend will shift to other categories that are perfectly fine for Apple to make money in. But it does mean there's going to be this continued hole in the finances that has to be filled with other things. And, you know, it just means they're, they're kind of uh, having to get growth in some other business just to try to offset that. And whether it's Apple Watch, whether it's, you know, other new products like the Apple TV, you know, it would be great if those things just provided incremental growth for Apple. But at the moment, they're having to fill the iPad hole first and then drive growth. And I, and I suspect that's going to continue to be the case next year and probably uh, for, for another couple of years at least before things perhaps start to stabilize a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that sounds exactly right. I don't think the iPad Pro is compelling enough. So maybe let me jump in with my iPad predictions 
for next year. So I think one of the things that's going to annoy people is Apple's not going to update the Air until October. And everybody's going to complain all year about how the iPad Air feels long in the tooth um, as a result. But I do think the iPad Air update that comes in October is going to be substantial. I think it's essentially going to become a mini version of the iPad Pro, which I know is confusing because they also have the iPad Mini. But I think the iPad Air is going to get, you know, the pen. It's going to work with the pencil. Um, I can picture them shipping a keyboard uh, mm. that they've custom made. Um, I think it's just going to become a, essentially a down market version of the iPad Pro. The iPad Pro Junior, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think with the iPads, the the uh, I think the iPad Pro is going to get a typical like not exciting update or no updates, and it, people are going to be surprised that the iPad Pro doesn't get an update. I think the mm. iPad Mini will get updated again, but left behind in the way it was not this year, but the year prior, where the you know where it basically got Touch ID and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you'll see a, a tiny bump for the iPad Mini, but it will kind of get left behind the other two in the iPad line. I think mm. the big thing that's going to disappoint people this year is that, and I know you disagree with me on this, but I don't think they're going right. to have three D touch in the iPad this year. And mm. it's just, it's my very non-technical, non-engineer guess based on how hard it sounded like it was to do 3D touch in the iPhone. I mean, because it, it has to do with like the orientation and if you're moving your hand and all this kind of crazy stuff to get this to work right. And so, uh, so I, I think people are going to be sad that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I feel like that's an obvious upgrade to the iPad Pro this time around. And it also feels like if they do upgrade the iPad Air or iPad Mini, that would be another obvious thing to go in there. So, you know, if if the iPhone were the only device that had 3D or Force Touch, then I'd say, sure, okay, you know, maybe it continues to be an iPhone exclusive thing. But it's in the watch already with a different name. Uh, it's in trackpads, both on MacBooks and standalone already. Um, so it's a thing now. <laughs> I yeah. feel like it's kind of standard across the rest of the product line. And, and, you know, not all the MacBooks have been upgraded yet, but, uh, you know, they will eventually get it. I'm more certain of that. So it just feels odd that the iPads would be left out of that party to some extent. So that's why I'm skeptical that 3D Touch doesn't come to iPads. Maybe you're right that it doesn't come this year. Maybe it's, you know, because these devices don't really get significant upgrades this year. And maybe that's something that happens in 2017 instead. That's a possibility, I guess. But it feels inevitable to me that it lands there eventually. And it seems likely that it would land there uh, in, you know, the fall of 2016 when they update at least a couple of those devices. Well, I feel like we should be hanging bets on where we disagree, but... uh, Yeah, there we go. I don't know. Maybe not on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that feels like... I don't know. That's definitely one where we disagree. Um, Okay, so let's move on to the iPhone. Um, Again, my prediction is more sort of financial operating in nature, and we kind of talked about the the Morgan Stanley report already. Um, I'm going to say the iPhone does grow this year, um, year on year. Not massive growth, you know, probably single-digit um, but I think it's still going to grow. If you take the four quarters of this coming year together, um, you know they will be bigger than four quarters of 2015. Um, and I, several reasons for thinking that. One is China. There's still massive growth in China. Um, still expansion there. New retail stores opening there. You know, significant amount of switching from Android. Um, and so on and so forth. I also think you're going to continue to see, and Aaron was referring to this earlier, but um, significant switching from Android in other markets, including the US. Um, So I think on balance, you're still going to see growth in the iPhone as it continues to convert Android users. You know, a few laggers, obviously, from things like BlackBerry and Windows Phone as well. But for the vast majority of the growth will come from people switching from Android. Um, You know, larger screens and various other things are going to make it more compelling. 
um, you know, with some of these uh, upgrade programs and a lot more phones coming to the secondary market, some of that growth will come through people buying secondhand iPhones. So it won't necessarily show up in Apple's financials. Uh, but I still think Apple's financials will show year-on-year growth for the iPhone. Uh, and that's really important for them. The iPhone's been the major driver of growth for them. Obviously, the Mac's been growing as well. You have Apple TV and Apple Watch now starting to contribute a bit more too. But, you know, the iPhone is really what moves the needle at Apple. And so I think it's it's very important that they have that growth. But um, I'm expecting that, that the iPhone will grow year-on-year year again. And I, I don't, don't see that ending anytime soon, actually. And even Morgan Stanley, interestingly, does see growth coming back to the iPhone the year after when you get the upgrade cycle from the massive iPhone 6 um, cycle two years earlier. So that's interesting. But yeah, I, I see it growing this year, you know, on a year-on-year basis throughout the year. Maybe the odd dip here and there on an individual quarter, but I suspect actually each quarter will still be slightly up on uh, last year's numbers. So that's my my big iPhone prediction. Do you want to talk through your sort of product-related predictions sure. for the iPhone? Team? Yeah, I think you're right, by the way, on the iPhone growth. I, I think there's still just there's still room to grow both on the switching side and the new emerging market side. So I, I think that's going to happen. As far as the iPhone is concerned, the iPhone 7 is like the safest prediction anybody can make right now is that there will be an iPhone 7 in the fall <laughs> yes. announced in September, right? But um, And obviously that will come with a new form factor. I, I, you know, Whether or not it's thinner again, I don't know. Um, I don't really care about that part, to be honest. <laughs> but I do think, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, battery life will stay on par and all that too. I, I do think the, um, I think you'll see new display tech in the iPhone. That's where Apple tends to introduce new display technology is in the iPhone. Um, mm-hmm. th- that's because it's a smaller form factor, so it's not as difficult to, you know, it, it, when you're when you're dealing with smaller screen sizes, they're just easier to produce. And right. um, and I think the new dis- and there was that rumor just as from this last week about the display um, facility that they bought in Taiwan, and that they're going to be developing some of their own display tech. I think. I suspect they've kind of been working or, or thinking about striking out on their own on display tech for a while now because they've had a rocky mm. history as far as display tech goes and their suppliers. And so it wouldn't surprise me if they've moved that direction and, you know, try to do something like they've done with Silicon on display tech. And I think if that happens, we'd see it in the iPhone 7 first. My right. out there prediction on the iPhone 7 is that they're going to have the light field technology like the Lytro cameras have. Mm in the iPhone 7 camera. I think it'll be a special setting. So by default, you won't take a Lytro, like a, you know, because the benefit of this is that you can refocus photos after you've taken them. After the fact, right. Right, yep. and I think this will be a special setting, so a special option. And it'll be lower res because that's one of the challenges, but I think it'll be finally high enough resolution that Apple's comfortable putting it in the phone. Um, and uh, it will be something like live photos are, you know, it's a picture with this sort of like baked in surprise. So that's mm-hmm. my guess on that. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. So we've covered the iPhone, we covered the iPad. Um, let's talk about, um, well, I guess the one thing we didn't talk about in relation to the iPhone was this new, smaller, cheaper phone oh, that's right. been kind of floated for a little while. And neither of us, I think, had a specific prediction to offer on that. But I think we ought to cover it as we're talking about iPhone. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's something that's you know been around for a long time, this idea that Apple should introduce a cheaper phone. They obviously had the 5C a couple of years ago that really 
didn't move the needle a huge amount on sales actually seemed to drive people back to the most current version of the phone because it was the kind of thing where if you bought it it was obvious you'd bought the cheap phone whereas you know right. you just bought last year's model nobody knew when you bought it and so it wasn't the same perhaps stigma attached to it um you know that th- there's been as far as kind of competitive levers go you know the last remaining thing that android can do that an iphone doesn't is cheap right um, and so there's always this idea that you know if I, Apple would just come out with a cheaper iPhone, um, that that would that, that would sell really well. And, and in this particular case, the rumor is kind of tied to the fact that it's a four-inch device. So we're going back to sort of an older form factor potentially, or at least an older screen size. Um, I'm I'm skeptical. I mean, a I'm skeptical of the fact this thing is supposed to launch in the first half of next year. I think if it happens at all, yeah. it happens at the same time as the other fi- iPhones in the fall. But I'm also skeptical of the idea that it's going to be significantly cheaper than just buying an older iPhone. Um, I just I, it's extremely hard for Apple to do that without devaluing the iPhone line. Um, you know, you suddenly say, well, this is good enough and it's brand new, and it costs you know three or four hundred dollars less than a new iPhone. You know, how does that not drag down the whole line? Um, and you know, aren't they better off just selling all the secondary iPhones they're going to get back from the iPhone upgrade program in emerging markets you know, as refurbished phones if they want to bring the price point down? Yeah. Um, and then there's the size too. Like you know, it's easy to oh, a smaller phone's cheaper to make and so on. But in these markets where people can't afford to buy both a smartphone and a tablet, you know, bigger f- screens are a really big thing. Um, and so the idea that the four inch gets coupled with a lower price for emerging markets is not necessarily all that sound an idea either. So that's, you know, all that stuff combined makes me a bit skeptical about this whole idea. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on all of that. The only way I could picture it happening is if Apple sort of saw it as like an iPhone mini in the same way they have the iPad mini, where they essentially sort of realize, you know what, we've got, we've got an unnecessary umbrella here both with price and sizing, and it would be easy for them to go snatch it up. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, And with the new sort of form factor refresh that they'll be doing with the iPhone 7, it would be the moment to do a 4-inch iPhone, go back down as far as screen size goes. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think it will be a cheap phone. You know, and that was the misconception with the 5C is that it was a cheap phone, and then when it got priced, everybody's like, that's not cheap. And I, I don't think it'll be a cheap phone, but it will be a down market right. phone. And yeah. that that's the only way I could picture that happening. But if mm-hmm. if I had to if if you made me like choose, I would say I don't think it's gonna happen. Right. Right. Um, it seems like a good place to throw in one of my other predictions, actually. It's not an Apple-related one specifically, but it does relate to what we were talking about with the iPhone, and, and that's um, that the U.S. smartphone market is going to have its first down year this year. In other words, this is the first year that the smartphone sales in the U.S. will be down from the year before. And that's actually going to start this quarter in Q4, which will be reported in January and February by the carriers and so on. But Q4 last year, so Q4 2014, was the biggest quarter by far for smartphone sales in the U.S. And the biggest single reason for that was the iPhone 6 that launched then um, right before that quarter, and and most of the sales happened in that quarter. Um, That both drove a huge amount of switching from Android to iPhone. It drove a lot of carrier switching as well, as the carriers offered very aggressive deals 
on the iPhone. Uh, and it also um, pulled a lot of upgrade activity forward from um, the first quarter of this year into Q4 of that year. So those three factors taken together meant that that was a huge quarter. This quarter is going to be down, um, is my prediction. But I think this is going to be the first quarter of several when uh, sales may well be down year on year. And that sounds strange in a, in a market where you know more people have smartphones all the time and so on. But the reality is that the US smartphone market is starting to become saturated. So it's slowing down in terms of growth. Um, these new upgrade programs mean that people can theoretically upgrade more quickly, but other than at T-Mobile, the evidence seems to be that actually upgrade rates are slowing down. Uh, AT&T's really taking its foot off the gas as far as trying to get people to upgrade. They're, they're really letting people upgrade on their own time. Um, under most of the service plans that people have now, you actually save money if you don't upgrade the minute you become eligible to upgrade because you're no longer paying the monthly installments for your device payments and so on. Um, and so I actually think we're going to see a lower year for smartphone sales. And, you know, Apple's going to get some switching from Android to iPhone um, that will help them even as the overall market shrinks. But I think Apple may even have a down year uh, in the U.S. given the fact that the overall market is going to shrink. And its its share will grow a little bit, but not as dramatically as it did last year. So um, that's kind of my first non-Apple prediction. I'm just going to throw in the mix here because it kind of relates to what we're talking about with the iPhone. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, I, in fact... It's just a saturation issue, and um, I think the market is essentially saturated. And so, um, yeah, I think you've got it right. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you cover your Mac prediction? Sure. So I think this is going to be a really big year for the Mac line. Uh, I, I think this past year wasn't super exciting. I mean, really, the only big exciting thing on the Mac side was the um, was the new MacBook, um, and even that was sort of like you know it, it was it was more like a signal flare <laughs> of of what the future holds than an actually mm-hmm. new exciting you know hugely exciting product and so mm-hmm. i think what we're going to see is what the what the what the macbook was portending we're going to see playing out this coming year and so i think you're going to see first of all skylake is going to be a big deal processor wise it's going to enable a bunch of new more powerful features um, especially like external display support um, huge battery life improvements and so i think you're going to see a skylake update processor wise that's going to push a huge update form factor wise i think apple's going to use this as an opportunity to form factor upgrades and and i say that because the other big change is the move to USB-C um, with the new the new connector that's in the macbook now um, mm-hmm. and so i think you're going to see with that connector upgrade with the skylake upgrade you're going to see a form factor upgrade across most of the line in fact i think the only thing that's not going to get a, a, a form factor upgrade this year is the mac pro I do think the Mac Pro is going to get a processor bump, but I don't think th- I think the form factor isn't going to change a ton. Um, I think battery life and laptops is going to be a big deal related to battery. I think it's going to be controversial, but I think Apple's going to switch to USB-C charging for their laptop line. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's going to take a lot of people off because MagSafe will go away. But um, uh, and then the other thing I think that's going to happen. Is the, I will say also the, I think the iMacs are going to get a form factor upgrade, um, colors that kind of a stuff. But it, but, but I think it's going to happen second half of the year. I think mm-hmm. all the laptops are going to be updated before WWDC this year, probably like February March. And then the other big exciting thing, although not to most people, but to me, is I think this is the year we finally get an external Retina display. 
you know, mm-hmm. the truth is Apple has always done their external display updates like in big gaps, right? I mean, they go years before right. they do the next one. But yep. I, and, and I know people have been predicting it for a while, but the truth has just been a technological barrier. Uh, something mm-hmm. that Marco Arment described really well on his blog, gosh, has been over a year ago now, I think. But Skylake is the solution to that technical problem. And so uh, I think we're finally going to have external Thunderbolt displays, or sorry, uh, 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 Retina displays, which is going to be exciting. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, okay. it's funny because I don't think Apple's not going to have any new product lines this year, I don't think. And, and, and I think the Mac is going to be one of the, one of the product lines that benefits from that because there's just going to be, that's where they're going to put some energy. Mm, that's an interesting idea. Okay. Um, so this may be another area we disagree because I think one of the things that Apple may do this year is get into the smart home hardware business. Um, and the reason for saying that is they launched HomeKit, what, two years ago now? A year and a half ago, I guess it is. Um, so last, last year's WWDC. Um, for the first year or so, basically didn't go anywhere. Um, and then this fall, we finally saw the first products that connect to it, but it really hasn't been a big deal at all. Um, it's barely mentioned at WWDC this year. Um, those products are really kind of low profile. You know, there are others like Nest and so on that aren't part of that ecosystem and that seem to be doing much better. Um, and so it just feels like to the extent that Apple is serious about the smart home, they've really not made it work yet. Um, you know, I think the the theory behind HomeKit is great. You know, the way it's been architected is really clever. Um, you know, if you go back and, and watch the, the developer presentations from WWDC in 2014 about HomeKit, you know, it's, it's a very clever idea. But the reality is there are lots of people out there that are making smart home equipment. There are lots of existing ecosystems out there that people are a part of, whether proprietary or, or broader than that. Um, and, you know, none of the hardware that works with HomeKit seems to be that big a deal. And so I think either Apple gives up on this, which is a possibility, uh, just kind of lets it languish, or if they're really serious about it, I think they need to start making their own hardware. And so if there is a new product category that Apple will get into in 2016, I think it's this smart home hardware, making their own uh, connected devices for the home, um, you know, using potentially the new Apple TV as a hub for all of that, um, but uh, using HomeKit obviously as the sort of connective tissue with all of it as well. And I think there are two ways they could get into it. One is they develop their own stuff organically. The other one is there's tons of companies out there in this space that aren't doing that well. Some of them are going out of business. Lots of stuff that's for sale out there. And so Apple could easily acquire something a la Google and make that the core of its hardware strategy here. They might do it just to buy technology or patents and then still create their own stuff, in which case, the actual creation of the hardware might come in 2017. But it feels like this is a space where Apple ought to be doing much better than it is. And I think 2016 might be the year that we either see that they essentially give up on it or uh, really go after it much harder by either creating or acquiring hardware in the smart home space. Yeah, we do disagree. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think your reasoning is really insightful, and I could see it playing out that way. But Apple always has a redheaded stepchild. They always have one thing in you know their products and services that is neglected in a way that frustrates users. Apple just mm-hmm. doesn't quite see the upside to get them to really invest and, and, and put a lot of time and design work into it. I think that's going to be HomeKit for the coming year, which means that mm-hmm. they're neither going to abandon it or nor are they going to uh, uh, make a big investment in it. So, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I, I yeah. hope you're right though for sure. 
Um, do you want to talk about iOS and, and maybe WWDC announcements in general? I mean, you mentioned Watch OS. You didn't think that would get an update until yeah. WWDC either. But so, what do you see happening in iOS 10? I think iOS 10 is going to be a big deal. Um, I, I don't think OS 10. This is going to get confusing now that we have an iOS 10. Um, yeah. But uh, I think Mac I think, OS. Yeah, I should say Mac OS right. 10. I think is going to be minor. I don't think it's going to be a big deal. But I think iOS 10 is going to be a big deal on the productivity side. I mean, we just talked last week about how the tablet is. Uh, that was last week, right? Yeah, about how the tablet is is a form factor that people haven't really figured out for you know day to day work right. and. I think that's going to be a big focus, and where iPhones, you know, could maybe fit into that productivity-wise. I think mm-hmm. having IBM as a partner in all this is going to help them be more thoughtful about where these devices fit into the workplace. And so, I, I think OS 10, I, iOS version 10, <laughs> is going to be <laughs> is is going to be the biggest deal out of WWDC this year. I think TVOS will also get an upgrade, but and it'll be mostly mm-hmm. focused on gaming. And making it yeah. friendlier to game developers, um, and uh, honestly, I think they can't do that soon enough. But mm. it's probably going to be a WWDC. Yeah, I, I, so I kind of floated this idea of, of Apple separating out, separating out the OS for the iPad Pro from the rest of the iOS line. You know, with a Pad OS or something like that. On, on, a, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a piece about it. Since then, as well uh, for Tech Pinions. But yeah, that's one thing I'm curious about at WWDC whether we get some kind of greater separation of uh, some or all of the iPads from the rest of iOS if, if they seem to kind of go off in their own direction a bit more to support the pencil and the keyboard and the, the, the uh, split screen and all the rest of the stuff that iPads do that iPhones don't and that kind of frees them up to be their own class of devices rather than always having to be kind of tied back to iPhones. Um, as relates kind of to iOS 10, I guess this is where it would land. I think, you know, one thing that I've been expecting for a while now, and I think iOS 10 and WWDC next year could well be the place where it lands, is Apple launching peer-to-peer payments. Mm. Um, I think it would be off the back of um, a combination of iMessage and Apple Pay. Um, so, you know, with Apple Pay, you have lots of people's credit cards. You have Touch ID used to authenticate those payments when people make them in stores and so on and, and within apps. So you already have a method for... You know, people authenticating the fact that they want to send money to somebody else, whether that's in an app or in a physical retail store. Uh, with iMessage, you already have people with you know a great deal of their social network that's there um, connected to them, especially all their friends that um, use iPhones as well, and therefore are kind of blue friends within iMessage. You know, you have that strong connection there that's tied back to Apple IDs as well. Um, and I think that that seems to be a great basis for creating peer-to-peer payments a la Venmo um, where you can easily send money to friends or family members um, through iMessage um, and authenticating with Touch ID and the credit card or whatever you already have on file. The challenge is, of course, that peer-to-peer payments tend not to use credit cards. They tend to use bank accounts. Um, and that is the challenge here because unlike credit cards, there's no processing fee associated with that. Um, and so there's no obvious cut for Apple to take here as it can with Apple Pay. And so the question is, you know, do they just take the hit on this? Do they charge some kind of uh, commission, which seems a bit unApple like um, so that's the one part of this I'm, I'm unsure about is exactly how the financial side of this works, whether Apple just kind of eats the cost here as part of making the, the uh, iMessage ecosystem more interesting. It also opens up the broader question of what else Apple could do with iMessage. And you've seen you know, Facebook this week has this really interesting integration with Uber. 
Uber, uh, where you can now, if you're having a conversation with a group of friends about meeting up later, you can all order your Ubers from within your Facebook Messenger conversation. It's all tightly integrated in there. Um, you know, you've seen Facebook basically try to replicate some of what the Asian messaging applications have done as far as uh, creating businesses around messaging. Apple obviously doesn't need to do that. It has a very you know, strong business already around selling hardware. Um, but I'm curious to see you know, whether it feels that iMessage needs to evolve in other ways beyond you know, peer-to-peer payments um, and, and become more like some of those other messaging platforms in order to stay relevant and continue to provide uh, value. So. I don't have a specific prediction here beyond the peer-to-peer payments, but I wonder if we might well see more interesting stuff showing up in iMessage, you know, either at WWDC this year or over the next couple of years where it starts to become a bit more like some of these more fully-fledged messaging platforms where they get more features and other things that people are used to. But again, not to drive a business for Apple, but as a way to add value to the ecosystem and keep people loyal to their iPhones. It's funny you say this because I literally just this morning sent uh, money to a sister-in-law using Square's cash app, um, mm. you know, because we're chipping in on a, on a Christmas present. And, uh, um, yeah, I was able to do that with a debit card, um, right. which I, I, I think if they figure out the, the interchange fees problem, it's going to have to do in part with the fact that the likelihood of fraud drops dramatically. With, mm-hmm. with Touch ID, with peer-to-peer payments. And so right. I think they'll be able to save money on that. And Yeah, and the challenge is just going to be that they have people's credit cards so they don't necessarily have their bank account details. So people are going to have to add their bank account details or debit cards that they haven't necessarily added previously right. to their accounts, which, you know, the nice thing about Apple Pay was they had tons of credit cards on file already. Right. Um, so this would be a bit of a higher sort of barrier to entry. But once you've got it there... Um, then you know the, the, the whole clearing system should should work as it does with other peer-to-peer payments. Yeah. Um, did, I'm trying to remember. Did you have any other Apple-related predictions? Uh, or should we move some, on to uh, the non-TV stuff. Apple TV. Oh, there we go. But yeah. it's minor. I think the Apple TV next okay. year is going to get 4K support. As I say it, I feel like I'm saying it a year too soon, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm hanging it out there anyway. Um, I think. Uh, I, I think. So I've got predictions about TV generally, not about Apple specifically. Um, but yeah. I think you're going to see deeper Siri integration into other content, like video content apps. So you're going to see more Siri you know, connections into uh, um, various uh, network applications, uh, not just Netflix, you know. So, um, but I think... Uh, I think the thing that will be interesting to keep an eye on with the Apple TV this year is its role as a gaming device. And I think it's unfortunately true that the Apple TV's importance as a gaming device is not yet a foregone conclusion. I I was a lot more bullish on it until I set up the Apple TV last night that I'm I'm giving to my kids for Christmas. And I was sad that there wasn't more there. Um, you know, I started pre-installing some games. I just wanted to kind of have it ready. Plus, it was fun to play with, play around with it. And I, I don't know, as it, it, the way it feels right now, there's it doesn't feel like there's a ton of developer momentum. And I think this is going to be one of the more important predictors of the fate of the Apple TV um, that most people are talking about because it seems to be most attention is drawn to you know TV shows, movies. But I think uh, I think its value as a gaming device is going to be really important, and it doesn't feel like they've figured it out yet. So that's not a prediction per se, as much as it is like a I don't know, just a comment on something to watch about the Apple TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I feel like the challenge for the Apple TV is that 
because it's a TV device and a gaming device, TV brands are much more familiar to us. Right. Um, because of the way that's so fragmented, because there isn't like an Apple TV app or anything like that. You know, you've got dozens, literally, of, of TV brands that you're familiar with. And if you want to watch the same range of stuff that you watch through cable or satellite TV or whatever today, you've got to download, you know, 20, 30 different apps, right. you know, from everything from ABC to CBS to Fox to Showtime to HBO to, you know, um, all the different sports apps and ESPN and all the rest of it. Um, and that's the challenge is that they can be kind of overwhelming, all of those apps, before you even get to the games. Um, and that they're kind of, I think they're on the first row of the featured page in the Apple App Store on the Apple TV and so on. So, you know, the games feel like a bit of an afterthought. And a lot of the games that are there, you know, some of them may be familiar if you happen to have used them on your phone before, but they aren't the big brands in the same way. You know, you don't have like an EA area right. or you know, Activision area or anything like that. It's individual apps that you'd have to be familiar with. Um, and in most, case, most cases, you won't be. Um, so it just feels like the discovery task there is, is a lot m bigger for, for games, too, on the Apple TV for now, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think the thing um, is, is it, gaming happened to Apple on the iOS platform. And right. I think they're, they're approaching the Apple TV the same way, but I don't think it's a foregone mm -hmm. conclusion. That game, I think Apple no. needs to make gaming happen when it comes to the Apple TV, and they're not, they haven't yet done a good job of that. Yeah, and I'm curious to see how that evolves. I mean, there's something like 400 new apps every week on the Apple TV, which sounds like a lot, but a lot of them are little no-name, you know, things that most people wouldn't care about. And so it'll be interesting to see over the next year or so how that changes and whether we do see some bigger brands landing there and some really interesting innovation, too, around the way games can work on a TV, you know, versus the way they work on a phone or an iPad or whatever. Right. Um, so let's see, let's start going beyond our Apple predictions in the last few minutes here and talk about some other stuff. So one of the interesting things that's going to happen very early in 2016 is that Google is finally going to separate its financials, or I should say Alphabet is going to separate out its financials because Google has now become Alphabet. Google now refers just to the kind of core Google business, all this Google-branded stuff. Um, like search and, and uh, advertising and so on. And then the rest of Alphabet is all these other businesses that are in, including Nest that we've already mentioned, including self-driving cars, uh, including their life sciences initiatives, Google Fiber, um, uh, Google Loon, this kind of balloon-based internet access stuff. Um, there's a whole range of other things. And so they're finally going to separate their financials between Google and then the rest of Alphabet um, when they report their results for the fourth quarter of this year in January or February. Um, that's going to be the first insight that we get into uh, how those finances really split out. And my sense is, and here's my prediction, that the core Google business is going to come out looking really, really good. Um, so the bit that most of us think of as Google is going to be more profitable, perhaps even faster growing. Um, and just performing better in general than, than many people have assumed it was until now. And conversely, the kind of rest of businesses are going to look really terrible. Um, and I've, I've been contacted by a couple of reporters trying to get predictions from me about exactly what those finances will look like because they're talking to you know, financial analysts whose predictions for the rest of business are wildly different. Um, you know, from, from a few hundred million losses to several billion losses from those businesses. But the reality is that the kind of rest of businesses are likely losing significant amounts of money every year. Um, and so the first prediction is the core Google business will look really good. The second prediction is that the rest of it's going to look really bad. And as such, collectively at least, there'll be a lot more pressure and a lot of more accountability around those businesses than there has been until now. And my out on a limb prediction is that at some point in 2016, uh, Google will end up either shutting down, spinning off, or selling to somebody else. 
one of the alphabet businesses. And it may sound a bit too soon, and it may well be that that's true, that it doesn't happen until 2017 or later. But I feel like this is the beginning of accountability for some of these businesses that really are unproven in terms of their ability to generate revenue and profits for Google. So it'd be very interesting to see the kind of new accountability that comes with this sort of conglomerate structure that Alphabet is adopting uh, and the impact that that will have on uh, on how these things split out. That feels right to me. I mean, I, I think that it's going to be interesting because you're going to essentially have a corporate version of the way Google always dumps products, <laughs> right? Mm. I mean, they put some time and effort into a product. You know, they get a small following but not a huge use, you know, base of users, and then they just dump it because they feel like it's not worth their time. And I, I can see them doing a, essentially a corporate version of that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you want to talk about your broader TV prediction? I know you just talked about the Apple TV, but I know you had a broader one too. Yeah, I, I think so. This is going to be a prediction that we're going to look at not this coming year as being fulfilled, but we'll look back on 2016 and, and and see it marked as a year where essentially over the top TV services, right, direct streaming rather than having to do it through a cable subscription, is going to pick up a ton of steam this year, and it's going to have a it's going to have a few implications. Um, for example, I think Viacom is going to start offering some over the top. Uh, versions of its channels like Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, um, rather than having them tied. I think broadcast networks are all going to get up to speed on that and have over-the-top versions in the coming year as well. Um, as far as the exact timing and all this goes, I think it, a lot of it has to do with contracts that they have with cable companies, but I suspect that everybody is going to want to break free of cable companies, all these you know various networks. Um, and I think the the bigger implication of that is that 2016 is going to be um, the equivalent of 2006 for or 2007 for uh, print advertising revenue. I mean, I mean, basically, print advertising revenue was hanging in there until you know around 2006, and then from that point forward, from 2007 on, it just started declining, 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 and online ad revenue didn't really grow to fill the gap. And that's why you saw over that time period, you know, over those roughly six years, you saw all of these newspapers close their doors and magazines. And I think we're going to have the TV version of that starting in 2016. And I think what that means is that some of the more niche networks like cable, you know, those sort of cable channels that are way out there, I think those are going to shutter their doors. In fact, I think you're going to see some more likable Channels have a hard time keeping up. Like I could picture the History Channel having a rough go of it, for example. Um, and then, uh, so because what's going to happen is, all, is over top, over the top is going to be the future. But with that is going to come a totally different advertising model that's going to um, that's going to send ad revenue downhill. I don't think it's going to be as steep of a drop because I think the fact that if if over the top revenue. Or sorry, if over-the-top services, you know, can still figure out a way to bake in ads that doesn't drive people away, um, I think you're. I think it will hold up maybe a little better than print ad revenue did. But uh, at the same time, there's still going to be a bunch of pressure about limiting ads. I mean, Hulu right is now having their pay an extra five bucks a month and you get ad-free streaming. Um, 
I, I think there's just still a bunch of pressure for no ads or very few ads when it comes to online TV watching. And so I think 2016 is going to be the year that, you know, five years from now, we're going to look back on and say, oh, yeah, that's when TV started to change fundamentally because ad revenue changed fundamentally. Mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating to see, you know, the TV business has been disrupted in so many ways over the last 15 years or so since the internet really took off. And um, and yet the one thing that's been fairly stubbornly resistant to change is advertising and the role of advertising as part of the business model and so on. And, um, you know, Netflix has come along, obviously doesn't have advertising. You mentioned Hulu now has an ad-free option. Um, you know, you buy or rent shows through online services and, and obviously don't see any advertising there. Um, and so, you know, yet broadcast and cable TV, other than, you know, a few channels like HBO and Showtime, um, you know, still rely very heavily on advertising. Um, and so it'll be very interesting to see if that does start to change. It's already under pressure because audiences are dropping. So with cable uh, cord cutting and so on happening, um, some of the audiences for some of these things have started to drop. Viacom that you mentioned early on, they've been dropped by some of the pay TV providers because their channels are just less compelling. Um, you know, Comedy Central in, in, in specifically has lost some big names over the last couple of years um, with Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert, for example. Um, and so, um, you know, some interesting challenges that the TV market's facing. And, and OTT, this kind of over-the-top approach, seems to be part of the answer here. Um, but as we talked about before, it leads to this very sort of mosaic-like, very fragmented uh, world of television from a consumer perspective. And so I'm still very curious to see how all that comes together for consumers. Um, I had a, another, I guess, three quick sort of non-Apple-related predictions, and I'll just run through those very quickly. And then, Aaron, if you have any last ones, we can wrap up with that. Um, the first is that you know, Twitter's had a tough year this year. They've gone through a CEO change. Their user growth really hasn't been great since March. Their kind of core users uh, have actually fallen uh, from March to, uh, to September. Um, really challenging in many ways. And so um, my prediction for this year is, despite everything that Twitter's going to do to try to turn that around, their core user growth, um, in other words, ignoring this strange category that they have called SMS fast followers, which are people that just get updates on Twitter via SMS and therefore they can't really advertise to. If you ignore that group, their core user growth will continue to be more or less flat, in, uh, or, or their user numbers will be flat, so there'll be zero growth in 2016. I think that's going to put huge pressure on Jack Dorsey and the management team at Twitter. It doesn't mean revenue is going to be flat necessarily. They've been doing a better and better job of monetizing the user growth that they do have. And, and even from the existing user base they have, they've been monetizing them better. But I suspect that it, it's going to put more and more pressure on the management there to prove that this isn't kind of a, a 300 million and done type business. So, um, you know, that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Um, the second one is Facebook is going to make another big acquisition. I don't have anything specific in mind there. I think it would be fascinating if they were to buy one of these big Asian uh, messaging apps like uh, Line, um, you know, that had done so well in Asia where Facebook itself has kind of struggled. Um, but it might be something completely out of left field, kind of like the Oculus acquisition was. So I don't know what it would be, but I, I have a feeling that Facebook's not done making these big acquisitions, trying to kind of uh, secure their future, even as their current business continues to do very well. And then the third prediction is that Microsoft will finally launch what's being called the Surface Phone. And what I mean by that is a smartphone that was really built 
by Microsoft rather than being a holdover from the Nokia days. So the Lumia 950s that were just launched recently uh, were basically a holdover from the, the Nokia days um, and don't really represent what Microsoft's devices team would build. And Panos Panay, who runs the Surface team, has sort of been fairly lukewarm about the Lumia phones, uh, including in the launch event for the latest ones. And so we're finally going to see, I think, the, the Surface phone or the Panos Panay smartphone launch this year uh, at uh, Microsoft. However, I don't think it's going to do any better than the Lumia phones have. I think that that platform is really stuck uh, and I don't see anything that they can do to really turn that around in the near future. So those are my last three uh, quick fire sort of predictions for next year. Any last ones from you? No, I, I, and I'm 100% with you on those last three. So let's end this with some harmony. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for being with us, everybody. Um, you know, we, we started this in June. Our first episode was a WWDC preview. It's now the, towards the end of December. Uh, so we've been doing this for about six months now. We've, we've very much been enjoying it. We are going to take a break for the next two weeks, so we won't have a new episode the week of Christmas or the week of New Year's Day. Uh, we will hopefully be back with you the week after when I imagine CES and any announcements made at, at the Consumer Electronics Show will be uh, the major focus of what we talk about. I will be at CES in January, so um, perhaps may even see some of you there. But uh, thanks again for being with us throughout the last six months and, and today especially. And uh, we look forward to being with you again in a few weeks' time. Uh, enjoy your holidays, Christmas or whatever other holidays you might be celebrating at this time of year. And we'll talk to you again in a few weeks' time. Thanks. <laughs>